This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and it is Sunday, February the 5th, 2023. Today we are at week four of part three of our journey through the little book of Colossians. And this message is titled, From Death to Life. I encourage you to follow along with me in your Bible, and you can access my notes if you'd like to do so on our church website, which is trinityvale.com. And once again, thanks for joining with us. You know, one of the more memorable movie quotes of the late 90s is from M. Night Shyamalan's, I think I said that right, from his brilliant, but I also would say exceedingly creepy movie, The Sixth Sense. Bruce Willis plays a depressed child psychologist who meets this withdrawn and frightened boy who has a disturbing secret. And in the movie's critical scene, Cole, Cole's the weirded out little boy, he whispers, he's in a hospital bed, and he whispers to Malcolm, right, this is the psychologist played by Bruce Willis, he whispers to Malcolm words that will not only change Malcolm's life, but will explain his life, even though he won't understand the truth until the end of the movie. So do you remember the line? It's this, the little boy says, I see dead people, dead people walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see, and they don't know they're dead. Like I said, creepy factor 10. Although I have to add, there's a lot of really humorous memes about this on the internet. One, the same picture from the movie, but the caption is, I see dumb people, right? They don't know they're dumb. They believe anything they want to believe. But in any case, Guys, the stories, the story of that movie, the story's central concept that our world is filled with the spirits of dead people who don't realize they are dead. This has a profound biblical parallel, and it's where we have arrived in our text today. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now, last week we saw the incredible statement that in Christ we have been brought to fullness that our flesh has been circumcised. Right. By the way, if you missed last week and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Go listen to last week's message, right? Because it's super important, right? Our flesh has been circumcised. It's been emptied of its power. And we see in the image of baptism the reality that by faith we have been joined, buried with Christ in his death, and joined with Christ in his resurrection, and this is the amazing truth, right? The central new covenant truth that we are people of resurrection and we are fully spiritually alive. But friends, this wasn't always the case. And keeping in his theme of what Christ has already accomplished, right? What is already of true by your faith in Christ, Paul takes a step back and says, before you were in Christ, as for you, you were dead. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, we'll stop there. When you were dead. You know, in 1989, Bob Dylan released his 20th studio album, and the title track, Saved, opens with this. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone-cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. My friends, 
That's a hard truth, but it is a liberating truth if we will hear it. And it's also a necessary precursor to truly understanding the gospel's astounding hope. Because separate of Christ's regenerating work on our behalf, we are spiritually dead. You know, we tend to think of our sin being humanity's fundamental problem, but really, it's not. You know, if we could go dig up Stalin, Hitler, and Mussolini, put them on trial, convict them, and punish them for their crimes against humanity, they wouldn't care because they are dead. <laughs> you know, the root cause of the human condition, right, our inheritance from our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, is that apart from what only God can do, and apart from what God has already done in Christ, we are separated from the life of God, and we are spiritually dead. And Paul gives us here in the scripture two realities about that condition, about that spiritual deadness. First, he says, we are dead in our sins. And the, pre pre the, excuse me, the preposition in here is very important. For the believer, our defining reality and identity is that we are in Christ. But apart from Christ, our reality is that we are in our sins, meaning we continually live in the midst of the brokenness, the shame, the guilt, the pride, the self-centered living that results from the lack of being connected to the life, the influence, and the goodness of God. Now, of course, this looks very different in different people. There are non-believers who are kind, generous, compassionate people. And for that matter, there are believers who live as if they are spiritually dead. But my friends, apart from Christ, we are mired in the brokenness of our separation from God. And whatever that may look like, right? if we zoom out just a bit to observe the overall human condition, condition it doesn't look good. In Romans 6, Paul compares spiritual death to being a slave. This is Romans 6, 20, 21. And he says, when you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And not only are we dead in our sins, Paul also says that we still have with us, right before Christ, outside of Christ, we have the uncircumcision of our flesh. All right, back to that topic. And guys, there's two meanings here. First, the majority of these Colossian believers would have been Gentiles. So when Paul says that they were dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh, on the most basic level, he means that literally. Up until Christ, God's work, God's promises, and God's covenant was through the nation of Israel. And the mark of that covenant, at least for all the guys, was physical circumcision. Now, this was not true of the Gentile population of ancient Asia Minor, right, where the city of Colossae was located. You know, Pat, Paul captures this succinctly in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. And this is what we see there. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, right, Jewish people, Right, the nation of Israel, and Paul parenthetically adds here, which is done in the body by human hands. He says, remember that at that time, and here's the key, you the uncircumcised, you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you are foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Wow, powerful stuff. So on the, on the first, right, surface level, <laughs> physical level, when Paul says that we were bound to the uncircumcision of our flesh, it means as those first century Gentile believers, they were physically not part of the promise and the hope of God through the covenant that God had made, the, what we know as the old covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel. But friends, there's a deeper meaning here as well. And it is our flesh understood as what we explored in last week's message. Our flesh being our strategy of coping and living out of our own wisdom, our own strength, our own resources, or the lack thereof. The point being that when we are spiritually dead apart from Christ and estranged from God, our flesh is all we have. It is our only option. It's our only resource for life. And this is key. No matter what our flesh looks like, how corrupt it may be or however refined it may be, our flesh is still flesh. It's still only us. It's still the self-life. And it will not yield to God. Paul makes this clear back in Galatians again, in Galatians chapter 5, when he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. And friends, that was our condition. Trapped in bondage to the brokenness of our separation from God, lacking the resources to live any other way. We were dead in our sin and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But friends, the operative word in what I just said is was, right? This was our condition. Because right here, at least in the English, we have one of the biggest, most significant commas in all the New Testament. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, comma, God made you alive with Christ. Just to shorten that up, when you were dead, God made you alive. Back to the passage from Ephesians 2. Paul says, you were separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And friends, this is one of the great proclamations of the New Testament and of the Christian faith that we who were dead, and being dead, possessing no capacity whatsoever to bring ourselves back to life, we have instead been given new life by God, with God, and in Christ. You know, that great hope, this great hope, may be most perhaps dramatically seen in the Bible, in Scripture, in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. Now, of course, you remember the story. The son comes, he's you know, away, he spent all the money, he's in a pigsty. He comes to his senses, and he returns home in great humility and says to his father, and of course this is out of Luke 15, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right? The son, the prodigal, realized his place of spiritual death. 
And how did his father respond? But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now friends, multiple times here in Colossians and in other scriptures as well, Paul will assert as believers and part of God's family, we have been raised to a new life. We were dead and now we are alive. And our new life has a new source of life and it is the life of God, the presence of Christ. And significantly, my friends, with this new life comes a new way of life. And here we take the next crucial step. Foundational to our new life, Paul describes how in Christ God has fully, completely, and totally dealt with the issue of our sin. Continuing on in verse 13, He forgave us, God forgave us, all our sins. Now, my friends, we discussed this at length back in chapter 1, and we must realize that when Paul says the word all, that through Christ God forgave all our sin, that all means all. You know, I could build you a huge biblical case here demonstrating that reality, but I've done that many times in the past, so I'm not going to do it again today. For now, I just want to clarify a few things here. And if by some way this is new to you, or if you struggle with what I'm about to say, then let's give me a call if you're here in the valley. Let's have a cup of coffee and talk about it because this is so miraculous and it is so important. My friends, first, God's gift of forgiveness to the believer has already happened. But the verb that we see here, he forgave us, past tense, completed tense, all our sin. My friend, when you entered into faith in Christ, the New Testament cries out that you have been made new, that the old has gone, the new has come, and this new you is totally, completely, from eternity past to eternity future, fully forgiven. Now, one of the eternal attributes of God is that God is outside of time. That God is active in the, and present in the midst of time, as we understand it. But God exists outside of time. He's bigger. He sees all time at the same time. Meaning that God has seen your entire life. God knows everything you have ever done, ever thought, and ever will do or think. And seeing all of you and all of me, Christ calls us to himself and says, in me, you are forgiven. You are mine. You are my workmanship, my masterpiece, holy and dearly loved. You know, there's an old joke that I've, I've used here several times here at Trinity. Maybe you've heard it. It's the idea of somebody being lonelier than the third verse in a Baptist hymnal. Well, friends, I want to tell you that the greatest third verse in the history of hymns is the third verse from It Is Well With My Soul. Do you know it? Can you say it with me? 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. My friends, God forgave us all our sin. And then to explain and expand upon how God did this, we are now told that our sin debt against God has been canceled. Colossians 2 verse 14. So Paul has just said he forgave us all our sin, going on, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. All right. The phrase here, the charge of our legal indebtedness, is very unique in the Greek, and it can be understood from two perspectives. Okay, first of all, there's the idea that Paul here is referring to the law, right? The Mosaic law, the code of moral requirements under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And friends, as is so easily demonstrated, the law has no power to bring us to God. In fact, all the law does is bring guilt in condemnation, because when our lives are held up against God's moral perfection, we always fail horribly. So first, Paul declares this entire legal system that has brought you under guilt, it has been taken away. It no longer has any power of condemnation over you. The second perspective is that this charge of legal indebtedness is the list, maybe a long list, the indictment of all our sin and rebellion that the law has revealed. So to illustrate this, let's say I'm a career criminal. I've been caught, hauled before the court, and the prosecuting attorney gets up and says, right here on this table, I have all the volumes. It's a tall stack of books the full U.S. Penal Code, all the laws of our country. Boom. And then he turns to a slightly smaller stack of papers on his right and says, and here, right here, this list is the record of every way that Ethan has broken them. My friends, Paul is saying to us, both of these things, both the system that places us under guilt and our own sin that violated all the rules of the system, all of it has been placed on the cross with Christ. All of its power of condemnation against me and against you was crucified with Christ, and both the system and its charges against you have been canceled. In Christ, God has forgiven all your sin, and you are free. Now, my friends, that would be an awesome place to stop. But Paul has one more connected thought here, and it's important. Going on in verse 15, he says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All right. Four times right here in Colossians chapter 2, Paul has referred to either the powers and authorities or the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Right? Also translated, the NASB renders that, the elementary principles of this world. Now, there are many different thoughts about who these things are, who these powers, authorities, and forces are, You know what Paul means here. But there is some consist consistency, 
there is some consensus that these are basically the same. So who or what are these powers and authorities? Now, one reality we've got to see that we struggle with in our modern and postmodern worldview is the biblical reality nonetheless that these powers and authorities are the demonic forces, the fallen angels, the satanic forces that for all of history have sought to corrupt and undermine the goodness of God and enslave God's creation. There are multiple references to this in Genesis and hinted at throughout Scripture. Because, my friends, just the simple truth is our universe is not just a physical reality. It is a spiritual reality. And there are dangerous and malevolent spiritual forces that seek to kill, to steal, destroy, and lead the nations astray. Now, that's a big and sometimes very strange topic to explore, but it's real and it's important. Now, a step closer, our lives are filled with powers and authorities that we create and then that we place in positions of power and authority over us. I mean, some of these may be perfectly morally neutral, even good, but if we look to them in place of God, they become idols. And our idolatry could well be included in what Paul calls the elemental principles and spiritual forces of this world. But here's the thing. Regardless of what these texts specifically refer to, Paul describes the indisputable truth that there always have been, there are now, and there always will be, this side of eternity, spiritual forces, powers, and authorities that seek to resist and undermine the goodness and the purposes of God. And Paul's point for saying this is that on the cross, by Christ's death and resurrection, all of these powers have been defeated. For the person made alive in Christ, and for the community of Christ, the community of believers, these powers hold no sense of awe from us, no authority over us, and no power of fear to extract from us. But not only that, using very evocative language, Paul tells us that these forces have been humiliated. Again, Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And with the word triumphing, Paul draws upon the greatest spectacle of the ancient Roman world, right? what was literally known as a triumph. If you've ever studied the history of Rome or seen some of the Hollywood versions of this, you might be familiar with this, this, um, this example, this story. You see, from time to time, a Roman emperor, or sometimes less common, a Roman gen general, would accomplish some incredible victory on the field of battle or in a larger military campaign. And when they would return home to Rome, the greatest honor they could receive was a triumph. And it was a majestic parade throughout the streets of Rome, all the way to the Forum, with the returning hero in the chariot leading the way. The entire population of the city would turn out. The parade would include floats, artwork depicting the emperor's victories, but most importantly, the parade would include the vanquished enemies, right? the conquered generals, soldiers, heads of states, you name it, chained and humiliated before the jeering crowds of Rome. You see, if the triumph was the greatest honor a Roman could receive, 
then being the conquered enemy in the triumph was one of the greatest humiliations that Rome could give. And this is Paul's image of the enemies of God through Christ. They had been defeated, captured, and revealed as utterly humiliated and powerless by the cross. My friends, that's an image. But there's even more. The word for disarmed that we see here is more literally translated stripped. And some scholars have suggested, like make an argument, that Paul here is painting a deeply ironic picture of what actually happened on the cross. And I'm going to use the words here. And this this is a a longer quote from N.T. Wright. And he says, in this scenario, all of these powers, the powers and authorities, angry at Jesus' challenge to their sovereignty, they stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated their triumph over him when they crucified him. But instead, in one of the most dramatic paradoxes of the gospel, on the cross and in the spiritual realm, God stripped them naked, held them up to public contempt, and led them in his own triumphal procession. And in doing so, God exposed these powers for what they were, usurpers of authority, which was properly his. And so the cross, therefore, becomes the source of hope for all who were held captive under their rule, enslaved in fear and mutual suspicion. And now Christ welcomes all of these captives into a new family in which the ways of the old world, its behavior, its distinctions of race, class, and sex, its blind obedience to the forces of politics, economics, prejudice, and superstition, they have become simply out of date, a ragged and defeated rabble. Wow. My friends, that is awesome. If you know what it means to drop the mic, that's a time to drop the mic. But let me just close with this. We began with Paul's assertion that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. And now, because of what Christ fully accomplished on the cross for us, totally forgiving us and making us fully alive, you could very accurately say that we are now dead to being dead. Martin Luther described the message of this passage as the glorious exchange. Through the cross, Christ took our sin and in exchange gave us his righteousness. You know, it's the wonderful Easter song says, Oh, the wondrous cross, oh, the wondrous cross, it bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. In Romans 6, verses 6 through 8, again, I use this amazing passage. We read this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe, we know that we also live with him. We are dead to being dead, and our new life and our new identity in Christ, my friends, this is who we are and the reality in which we live today.
Church, I love you. Thanks for being with me today. I hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you again next Sunday. Thank you.